Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, let's all turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We continue this saga of following Paul as the gospel is preached in Europe. And it came at quite a cost, actually. I think sometimes we, we may forget that because of the great peace that it brings into our lives individually. But so often when the gospel is being presented in an initial kind of way, there's uh, often a, a, lot of, a lot of blowback. And uh, we see that again taking place as we've seen that a number of times uh, in the book of Acts here. And we're in chapter 17. I want to look at the first 15 verses. And I'll read if you'll follow. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. We're told here that when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, or that the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying that this Jesus whom I preach to you, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But when the Jews who were not persuaded, the unbelievers who choose not to accept the gospel, became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. That's where Paul and company were. And they sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't that great? Turn the world upside down. Because that's exactly what the gospel does. It turns it right side up. And Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to, this, to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, uh, they let them go. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, uh, to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, uh, but both Silas and Timothy remained there, and so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, uh, they departed. Lord, we are so thankful Lord, that there were people like Paul, Lord, that were willing to take the flack, Lord, uh, 
absorb, Lord, the, the things that the world throws, Lord, at us when the gospel and the truth of God is being preached. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for the work of your Spirit, Lord, in our lives and our hearts. And Lord, we have today our own challenges as we look at our world, the condition of our world. And we see, Lord, such great, tremendous need. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would inspire us, Lord, to be bold. Lord, help us, we pray, to take the necessary risk that we need to take, Lord, in order to present the gospel. And so often, Lord, uh, we, we feel unqualified. <laughs> we feel uh, often just um, unable in so many different ways. And even Paul would say at one time how he needed prayer because he sensed the, the, the spiritual warfare, the pressure uh, that comes, Lord, against anyone who would want to share the good news. And Lord, it really is good news. How it, Lord, wonderfully transforms us. Lord, your truth, it sets us free and it keeps us free. And I thank you, Lord, uh, for each and every one that's here. Lord, for our children in, in the ministry there. Meet with them as well, Father. So we pray, Lord, that, Lord, as we consider these matters, that you would speak, Lord, to our hearts and lives in a fresh way. You, you know exactly, Lord, what... <laughs> what we need. And uh, you said your word is food indeed, Lord, uh, and we pray that we would be nourished today, Lord, uh, nourished up on words of faith, that Lord, strengthened with might in the inner person, that you would be glorified and your name would be known, Lord, in our communities, Lord, in our world today, where there is such great and tremendous need. So, Father, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we entitled it, Turning Turning the world upside down, and how true that is, isn't it? Uh, you experience that in your own particular life. When Christ comes into your life, he touches your life, he changes the trajectory of it. Uh, we find when he comes into our life at, certain, you know, at, a, at a certain time, maybe uh, the things that we were planning, uh, purposing, the things that we were maybe working toward, all of a sudden that can change. And of course, it did in my particular life, and I think it does in many of our lives. Um, as we all of a sudden we find that there's a new plan, there's a new purpose, you know, for our lives. You know, the power of the gospel, the power of God's truth, what it's able to wonderfully do. You know, whenever the Lord's doing a new thing, the world does not hang out a welcome sign. Uh, as a matter of fact, we find there's oftentimes, a, you know, pushback. Uh, the children, you know, the, the Israelites were not welcomed into the promised land, okay? Uh, David, was, David had a fight basically seven years before he assumed his throne. And there's always going to be resistance to God's plan. You know, God, you know, working in any particular way, there's going to be a, a, a fight against that. And, and we see it here, particularly for Paul and what I would call basically the A-team. And whatever experience, you know, success they experience, it came at tremendous cost. We saw that last week, you know, Paul uh, taking that beating, uh, sacrificing in himself, you know, himself, you know, for, the, for the, this new infant church, uh, wanting to protect the church, you know, taking that, uh, taking that lashing and that beating him and Silas there. And, and he did it for a purpose. He didn't have to take that. Uh, and we do find, you know, and, and none of us, I think, are ever going to experience the degree of, of sacrifice that the Apostle Paul did. But here's the question for you and I. Are we willing? Are we willing? 
I think, I think I, when I look at Christianity today, I see people, I see many people unwilling to be even inconvenienced. We need to be willing to suffer and sacrifice if need be. That's what moves the gospel forward. When you think about Paul and company here, there was a blood trail that basically followed him throughout uh, you know, the, the ancient world at that particular time. Uh, and when God sees that, we're willing to, to be inconvenienced, uh, when we're willing to step out of our comfort zone, when we're willing basically to, be, you know, to sacrifice maybe our time, our, our energy, our money, whatever the case may be, God wonderfully honors that and he blesses that. And we see that taking place here. Now, Paul and company are going to travel basically 100 miles to Thessalonica capital city of, of Macedonia. It was a seaport. It was a commercial center. Um, and, uh, and so uh, we, we see here that God is going to start a work here. Later on, he would, you know, Paul would write two different epistles, two of his letters to the Thessalonica church there. And, uh, and it, today it's not named Thessalonica, it's just Salonica. And I think one of our, one of our ushers here, his wife is Greek, and uh, I think she goes back, when she goes back, I think uh, that she has relatives or I think she stays there in, uh, in Salonika. Now, it has to be, no doubt, a challenge for Paul because God is shifting. He, no doubt, you know, he has a mission. He's a, got a mission on his life. And, uh, uh, and, his, and he's got a heart for his people. He's got a heart for the Jewish people. Uh, in such an incredible, intense way. But God here is shifting. God is shifting uh, his mission, you know, from, you know, first and foremost, you know, ministering to his Jewish brethren, and he's shifting this over to Gentile uh, evangelism. And it's interesting because Paul, you know, when you think about the heart of Paul, you know, what, what gets the gospel out? You know, what gets us, you know, praying for people, caring for people? And, and when you look at the heart of Paul, he, and he speaks about it, uh, over in Romans chapter 9, because remember, Romans chapter 9, there's, there's three chapters, 9, 10, 11. It's like a slice he takes out of this book to the Romans, you know, to the Gentile believers. And he's basically, uh, in all those three chapters, he's speaking there about the Jews and that God is not finished with them. God has got a future plan. Is God saving Jews today? You bet. But nationally speaking, uh, they will come to a national belief at a future day. And the Bible basically speaks about that. But he says this in Romans chapter 9. And it's just a reminder, you know, for you and I, the heart that we're to have, not just, you know, not just for those, our family members. I think we do. You know, I hear this all the time, you know, thinking about how so often as we pray, um, think about that table of our prayer room, our men, we've been praying at that table, you know, for uh, in this church anyway, in this building anyway, for the last probably uh, uh, maybe 12 years, whatever the case may be, and all the different individuals that we prayed over and over and over again, uh, just trusting the Lord that he's going to save them and bring them into relationship with himself. And, and Paul would say this. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, he's speaking about, you know, his, his Jewish family. And think about that. Would you say that about, I don't know if we'd even say that about, you know, about somebody that we really love dearly. That I wish that I could be accursed from Christ, that they would be saved. Man, what a heart. 
I mean, I've never prayed that prayer, okay? I think most of it, and, and Paul, you know, he, he basically says, hey, given what I'm going to say, I want to tell you, I'm not lying. And, and this is, and, and when, you th- when you think about that, that's the nature of Christ, isn't it? That, that's the nature of Jesus, that he would say that. Um, and that's why he's willing to take these beatings. Because the thing is, you know what? If, if you don't love Jesus Christ, and that's what we see here in the life of Paul, there's a love that drives him on, that constrains him, that motivates him, that he's stoned, he can get up, you know, shake off the dust and, and just go back and want to tell people about the love of God. That's why we need the love of God in our lives. We, we need his love motivating us, you know, moving us to do things. So I thought, I've said this before. We will do at any cost the thing that we love. We're going to do that. That's the way it is. We've demonstrated this many times, haven't we? We will sacrifice for something that we love or someone that we love. But what's important is to make sure that we're loving God that way. That's why Jude was saying, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in love with him. And that's what really was driving Paul to, to say, uh, to make a statement like that, uh, that I would be accursed, you know, for my countrymen, that they would come to know the Lord in the sense that he did as well. Now, we're in, in chapter 17, uh, in, in, as he, he arrives in Thessalonica, uh, he goes to the synagogue. That was his custom, we're told, in verse 2. And for three weeks, uh, he reasoned with them uh, from the scriptures. And, and, and this section here gives us sort of an in, gives us some insights in how to present the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember here, Paul, he only had the Old Testament to work from. We, we, we tend to, you know, in our mind's eye, uh, look at Paul maybe um, as he presents the gospel, he opens up his Bible. No, he doesn't open up his Bible. He doesn't have a Bible yet. Um, and, if he, and, and, and I'm unsure that as far as Paul traveling, um, you know, in that ancient you know, scenario, if you had the scriptures, you had a scroll. Um, been to Israel, the, the Museum of the Book, uh, you'll, you'll see that, you know, some of these ancient scrolls and scraps of scrolls and so forth. But if you were to just simply have the scroll of Isaiah, I mean, it would be a big, massive thing. And so that's one of the reasons why Paul did go to the synagogue, because they had the scriptures. And, and that's all Paul had, when you think about it. He, he was able to present Jesus Christ. And that's why it's important for you and I to know the Bible. We need to know the Law and the Prophets. We, we need to know the Old Testament. We need to know the poetical books, the historical books. Uh, we need to read, we need to, they need to be a part of our devotions on a regular basis. Um, and when you think about what he had, must have had hidden in his heart. You know, they said of the ancient Jew that uh, uh, at, at certain, at certain uh, you know, points in time uh, that the children would grow up, and by the time that they were like seven years old, they could have the, the, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, we call it the Pentateuch. They would have that committed to memory. Can you imagine that? Uh, the only guy I've ever known was Jack Van Eppie. Remember Jack Van Eppie? He used to have the, he had the, like, I think the whole Bible memorized, and he was like the walking Bible kind of a thing. And I just wish I could remember, you know, one book of the Bible, you know, would, would really enhance my life. Uh, um, and the funny thing is sometimes, you know, and you experience this too, there's certain portions of scriptures that you had memorized. 
and, and, and then you go to, you know, quote it to somebody, and all of a sudden the Rolodex isn't working right, you know, and you're not, where to go, you know, kind of a thing. I find this, you know, so often, but speak what Paul had, he had it just basically hidden, you know, within his heart. Um, but when you think about this scripture that we have, this Bible, this book, it's all collated for you. It's chaptered and versed and you got helps and footnotes and, you know, all kinds of things. When you think about this treasure that you have sitting in your lap, that's why I've always been an advocate and I'm a Bible junkie, okay? That means I spare no, co- no, I spare no expense when it comes to buying the Bible and I have so many Bibles, you know. Uh, Margie, sometimes I go into my desk and, you know, it's like there's a couple drawers that are just filled with Bibles. She says, how many Bibles do you need? You know, kind of a thing. And, uh, and you know, I give them away, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, um, but there's, there's something, you know, precious about the Word of God. Um, I, I, I've encouraged, you know, get a good Bible. I don't care if you have to spend two, $300 for a good Bible. We'll go out and spend $30,000 for a car. And it's got a shelf life. And when you think about the, you know, the everlasting, eternal Word of God, how encouraging that is. Get a good Bible that you like. You like the format. You know, you, 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 know, you enjoy the font. You're able to read it and all that sort of thing. You know, the Word of God that we have available to us is, is absolutely incredible. Again, this Bible here that we can carry. Now, what we saw him doing here in verse 2 is reasoning with them from the scriptures. And that basically implies a dialogue. In other words, there was questions, there was answers, you know, back and forth. Remember what Isaiah said, the Lord said through Isaiah chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, come, let us reason together, okay? And uh, it's important, I think, to be open to answering people's and responding to their questions. You know, one of the greatest ways of learning the Bible is, you know, risk by putting yourself in a situation, by witnessing to some, someone, because a lot of times we're afraid to because we feel we don't know the Bible adequately enough. But I'll tell you what, if you want to learn the Bible, start sharing the Bible and start talking to people about the Bible. And don't be afraid to say, you know what, I'm not really clear on that, but uh, you know, next time we get together, let's talk about that. Uh, so don't be afraid to share. Uh, and one of the things that I discovered too is, you know, when you sort of just step out in faith like that and you go out on a limb, you know, sharing the Bible and witnessing to people. I have found God come to my rescue. I, I have found, and it's like, I don't know where it came from. And you see, that's, that's available to you as well if you have the Holy Spirit. And if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. I think we need to more and more get dependent upon the Holy Spirit, don't we? Just more reliance upon Him, letting Him lead us, letting Him guide us, letting him, you know, walking with him, as the scripture says. Um, The second thing is important. Ask for wisdom, how to bring Christ or how to bring a biblical subject into the conversation. A lot of times I'm talking to people and I am praying as as we're just having a dialogue back and forth. I'm praying, Lord, help me. Help me somehow to just bring Christ, you know, into this situation. Maybe a biblical theme. You know, something about the Lord. And a lot of times, I'll, when I have a chance to say it, I'll sort, of, I'll sort of throw it out there like I'm fishing. I'll throw it out there sort of like a bait, if you will, to see if they bite, you know, to see if, it, if they go for it, uh, which, you know, if they do, man, that ensues a, a, a conversation. So ask for wisdom. You know, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. 
And so Paul goes in basically to reason with them, you know, from the scriptures we're told here. The third thing that we see here is that he didn't just quote a scripture. He basically explained it. He opened up. Now, it's great to quote a scripture, but it's even better to explain it. It's better basically to explain it, to open up the text. And what he's doing to the, for them, he's proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And what he's taking basically is, is messianic text, you know, out of the Old Testament. They're in Deuteronomy. There's a host of them in Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 40, uh, Psalm 118, uh, Isaiah 53 and, and 52 and 53. Uh, there's others when you look at the, the prophets and so forth. There's so many. And the only way that you're going to be able to get familiar with that is to be able to basically read your Bible and internalize those things, highlight things, circle different things. Imagine you have an appointment to speak to a Jewish person about the Messiah, about Jesus. What would you say? And that's the, again, that's the benefit and blessing of reading the Old Testament, internalizing it. And I, I am so thankful for the Old Testament Scripture. It has so enriched and blessed my life in so many different ways. And I know if you read your whole Bible, you can say that as well. But again, Paul had those things, you know, hidden within his heart, within his mind. And uh, you know, if you look at, you know, some of my older Bibles, man, uh, they've got so much yellow in them, so much highlighting. Um, you know, and, and I can remember... You know, the first time uh, I saw people writing in their Bible, I thought, what are you doing writing in your Bible? And I didn't realize that, you know, they were writing down little notes, little reminders and highlighting different things. And I've had different Bibles. Yeah, I've, again, I've got so many different Bibles, and, and I have gone with a bigger Bible now so I can read it more easily in the pulpit. But, you know, I've got certain Bibles. I know exactly where to turn. It's like I almost got a little picture in my mind of the page, that where it is on the page, you, you, you got some Bibles like that, some, some of your older Bibles that you've got highlighted and they're written in and you just, you're able to just refer to them. Some subject comes up and all of a sudden, boom, you know, it's like your, your brain goes into, uh, you know, a search engine and you're, you're thinking about, you know, uh, it's in, oh, it's in second, second Thessalonians or it's over in Ephesians or uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, whatever the case may be. We need to be able to reference those kinds of things, but they ain't going to happen unless we're reading them, unless we're internalizing them. And Paul uh, certainly wonderful did, wonderfully did that. Verse 3, explaining, demonstrating that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, Psalm 16, resurrection. Verses there in Psalm 16. Uh, <clears throat> and saying that this Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. He is uh, the Messiah. Now, we see a response here in verse 4. And I think oftentimes this response is, in a sense, it will be similar to the response that we get. Uh, I've been in crusades uh, where Billy Graham has preached and uh, Greg Laurie and... Um, you know, you, uh, you, you see how, you know, people respond, and not everybody responds. Sometimes, you know, you may take somebody, you know, to a crusade or to a certain kind of evangelistic meeting, and you sort of expect them maybe to respond in a certain way, and maybe, you know, maybe they don't do that. Uh, I was reading, actually reading this week about um, uh, William Pitt was the prime minister of England, and uh, uh, his friend Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, 
there was this great preacher in town, and he drugged uh, William Pitt, because William Pitt was an unbeliever, and William Wilber, Wilber, Wilberforce, well, they were friends, they were close friends, and they were in politics together. And, uh, and Wilberforce wanted Pitt to get saved. And so he took him to an evangelistic meeting, you know, right down in front. And, and uh, as this preacher is going on, it's like, oh, the gospel is so clear. It's so incredible, so awesome. And uh, as they're leaving the, uh, the meeting, Pitt says to Wilberforce, Wilberforce, I, have no, I don't have the slightest idea what that guy was talking about. And, uh, and, and, and that can happen. The gospel can be presented uh, in, a, in a very clear manner. But again, God's got to open the heart, doesn't he? We saw that with Lydia. Uh, God had to open her heart. And that's true with anybody, isn't it? You know, it's like the old adage, you can take the horse to water, but, uh, uh, you know, they have to drink. And not only that, God has to reveal himself. Um, and that's what I, you know, when I'm witnessing to someone, Lord, reveal yourself. Um, my, my words could be the greatest words. It could be, you know, you can... Uh, present the gospel in such a, a very, you know, uh, beautiful kind of way. But uh, God has to, in a sense, open their heart that they might come to know him. So we see here, uh, some of them were persuaded. The, the, the focus of his mission now is becoming uh, more of a Gentile um, uh, orientation. Remember in chapter 9, when God sent, God sent uh, Ananias um, and he said, you know, Ananias was fearful because this was Paul. This was Paul from, of Tarsus, and he was the hitman, you know, for the Sanhedrin. He had a reputation of tearing the, the, the church apart uh, down in Israel and in Jerusalem. And that reputation followed him when he was in Damascus. And, uh, and, and, uh, and Ananias is having a dialogue with the Lord that, uh, Lord, do you know what he's done? And of course, the Lord knows what he's done, but, but the Lord said to Ananias, he's a vessel that I have chosen, and he is going to take the gospel to kings, to Gentiles, and to the children of Israel. And certainly we see that here taking place. And of course, we know the devil is always available, ready to help out. We've seen that so far uh, in our story here. Um, we're told in verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, these were the un- these unbelieving uh, Jewish folks, uh, became envious, we're told, and took some evil men. I always love the old King James rendering of this. It's very poetic. Almost a little snooty. Lewd fellows of a baser sort. <laughs> uh, A.T. Robertson and his, uh, uh, he was a New Testament uh, scholar. He just calls them bums. <laughs> <laughs> they're bums, lewd fellows of a baser sort. They're, they're evil men, uh, taking them from the marketplace and gathering a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring, uh, that is, Paul and company, you know, out to the people. You know, there are certain sins that kind of complement one another and work well together, and that's unbelief, jealousy, and lies. You know, sin kind of works in tandem, doesn't it? And we see it at work here, uh, and that's basically the catalyst here that ignites this mob. Isn't it amazing how quickly, how fickle human nature is? It doesn't take a whole lot to start a mob or to or group think, you know, to control people, you know, in a negative kind of way. That's why you have to be very careful. There, there's no better thing to get into your soul than truth. Because truth will protect you against the lies. 
you know, the scripture says, the Old Testament says, and, and, and Paul uh, basically underscores that again in the New Testament, that all men are liars. That doesn't mean all men lie all the time. But basically, the unsaved nature is a lying nature. And I think we all proved that, didn't we, before we came to Christ, how easy it is to just basically a lie, a falsehood, a fabrication, a denial, or whatever the case may be. Um, and we see that at work in our culture today. And I'll tell you what, if you don't have this, the Holy Spirit's referred to as what? The spirit of truth. And if you don't have the spirit of truth at work within your life, you're, you're open to some lie, some, some fabrication, some deceitful thing that's flying around in our culture. Uh, it's amazing when I look at the news, the, the innuendo the falsehoods, the lies, the half-truths that, that are foisted on people, that people just unwittingly and unknowingly just sort of accept that. And I, I think if anybody in our culture should, be, should think critically, and I don't mean being a critic, but, but to examine what, what the philosophies, the, the culture think, I, I think the church, I think you and I, need to be those critical thinkers and not just sort of accept everything in, in a verbatim kind of way. Well, you know, the authority spoke that. It's interesting, isn't it, to see how this uh, medical emergency has become a political thing? And there's been so much lie. There have been so many lies about it. There have been so many lies about it because you know what? I think it was Socrates that... Um, coined the phrase, the noble lie. The noble lie. Now, that's, that's a lie, basically, that someone will foist on, on somebody or on a group of people because they feel it's for their better good. And that's why I think it's important. We, we need to search things out. And we need to have the Holy Spirit at work within our lives but we're yielded to him, we're obeying him, so that when a lie hits our life, the flag goes up. That, that thing that we call discernment. We're able to discern, you know, what's out there in our culture, what's deceiving people. So again, we see here a mob just sort of, you know, starting a riot. And you know what it's about? The study of Scripture. I mean, there hasn't even been a miracle here. The miracle, I think, is that... <laughs> You know, Paul keeps going from city to city in, in spite of all that he, you know, all that he faced. But just a Bible study. And it shows you how demonic it is that, that when God is at work, the, the enemy wants to come against that. He wants to come. He is, remember, Jesus said uh, about Satan that he's a liar. In other words, that's first and foremost that part of his nature. And that's how he deceives people. That's how he deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. First of all, he began to cast doubt upon God's word. Has God said? <laughs> first the doubt comes, and then the lie comes. So the city is in an uproar. <clears throat> but verse 6 says that when they did not find you know, Paul and company, they dragged this uh, individual by the name of Jason. We don't know a whole lot about him. 
and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here too. You know, when the truth is unleashed, the chains come off. Insight comes into a person's life. You know, I think sometimes uh, we who have been familiar with the truth or however long you've been saved, I think we take it for granted sometimes that there's something dynamic and powerful about the truth. Uh, I, can re- I can still remember when it hit my life, even though I didn't agree with it. I, I didn't agree. I agreed-, I agreed with the whole God thing. But I was wrestling with the Jesus thing and what Jesus could do and all that. And as I just sort of wrestled with that, you know, if it's a funny thing. If it wasn't true, I would just like, oh, who cares? But there's something about the truth. When it gets into someone's life and soul, they begin to just sort of wrestle with it. And, and, and that, that's the beauty of the truth, that the Holy Spirit takes the truth and there's a dynamic there. To, to put that hook into someone's soul. And, and, I, and then the more I just wrestled with it, the more I thought about it, the more hopeful I was that, that even though I didn't agree with the, 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 you know, the things that were being said, I was hopeful that it was true. Because what they were saying was revolutionary. And, and what they were saying, I knew in my heart of hearts I needed that. I needed that even though I wasn't willing to say it yet. And I think we need to give people that latitude, that opportunity to just wrestle, to wrestle with the truth and wrestle with the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, too, to continue to encourage them, you know, in the truth. But people have to go through that. Very seldom do you have somebody, you know, the first time they ever hear the gospel, it's like, you know, right away, boom. You know, even, even when on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people got saved, you have to remember those people were Jews with a biblical background. And so what was being said wasn't so foreign to them. It was like, wow, that's what that means. Because they had been in synagogue. They, had, they, had, you know, they grew up with the scriptures. But in our culture, we, we, folks, we're in a pagan culture. And so as we witness, as we pray for people, we're going to wrestle, going to struggle. But there's a dynamic in the truth. Because it's, it's not just the truth as like, you know, we, we, look at these, we look at these words on a piece of paper like they're just words on a piece of paper. No. No, these are God's word. And this is his truth. And when his truth goes out, there's a dynamic of God's spirit that goes with it. And we have to remember that. Because I think sometimes we're kind of a little bit unbelieving about what the truth and the Word of God can do. It it has transformed cultures. It has changed millions and hundreds of millions of hearts and minds over the course of history. It has blessed nations. It has given hope and help in so many different ways. You know, the thing is that 
Sin has damaged the, the psyche of man. And you know what right now, folks? The world is upside down. In other words, it's not the way God intended it to be. Sin has damaged it. And when Christ comes into a person's life, for them, their world is turned right side up. How interesting their statement here. <laughs> these, these are, oh, they, they've been to, you know, Philippi and Thessalonica. They've turned the, you know, they've, they've been turning the world upside down. And if these were just the words of a man, that would have never happened. Because it's only Jesus can really turn our lives right, right side up. We're, we're studying Job on Wednesday night. And one thing God said about Job, he's, he's upright. He's upright. <laughs> and that happens for us when we come to him. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul would write this. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe. And also, it, a part of that is too, they don't want to believe. And that's why when you think about the patience of God to work with us and to bring us to a place of faith and trust. He says, who, um, whose minds the God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, not about us, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, bondservants or slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He's actually going right back to the beginning in Genesis. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in other words, all of a sudden we see even though we don't see it with our eyes, we see the person of Christ. What a glorious moment that will be for us when we actually do lay our eyes upon him. And that's why when we tell people, well, I know the Lord, they look, he's like, what's wrong with you? Because none of us have seen the Lord. But you know that you know that you know you know him. Nobody can take that away from you. And I have never seen him, but I love him. And I've experienced his presence, his blessing in my life all these years. And you as well. We walk by faith and not by sight. So it's like that light of the truth has shone into our hearts, and all of a sudden we see. We see the glory of God. We see his glory, his preciousness, his beauty. And how great and awesome he is. It's a story that Kent uses. Uh, he shares um, about a pastor friend who went into a restaurant and began to witness to the waitress. He says, a pastor friend of mine was in a restaurant one day when the waitress came over to the table and he said this, have you made the wonderful discovery of knowing Christ personally? You ever witness to a waitress? I have. I've witnessed to a number of them. And they're going to be nice to you because they want a good tip. It's a great time to witness, you know, because 
you know, they're figuring, you know, if I'm nice, he's going to give me a tip later, but it's a great opportunity. You're kind of taking advantage of them. You're exploiting the moment, but why not, okay? In the conversation, she indicated that she had not and began to make excuses. She could not get to church on Sunday because she worked. Uh, she would be more comfortable with a Bible in her own language, which was Romanian, and so on. And there were not very many people in the restaurant. My friend reached for a copy of the tract, Four Steps for Peace with God. I remember that tract. But discovered he did not have it with him. So he took a napkin, and he wrote out the steps, and he gave it to her. He went on his way, but later on, he dropped off a Romanian Bible for her. But at a later date, he came back to the restaurant, which was very busy at the time, and across the restaurant, the waitress saw him and came over to tell him, uh, excitedly, she was reading the Bible. In fact, she had some, sometimes read it all night long, and better yet, she had come to Christ. And then she pulled out the napkin out of her pocket, which was almost in tatters, and she said this, Would you write that down for me again? I have showed this so many times to people that my napkin is coming apart. <laughs> And the author goes on to say, the power of the word of God had turned another life upside down. Next time you go to a restaurant, okay? You going to do that? It's a great opportunity. It really, really is. So these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason, we're told, harbored them. Uh, that was the accusation, harboring. Uh, basically, it's treason. That's what they're being accused of, treason. Saying there is another king, Jesus. So we've seen this before, using a political weapon um, against the, you know, the apostles. And yet, in another sense, it's true, isn't it? He's our king. He's coming. You know, one of the things that uh, you'll... Uh, that I've seen, and, and it's, it's sad, but it's just, just the way it's going to be, that whenever there's Christians in a totalitarian environment, that they're always persecuted, they're murdered, they're crushed. And that's satanic, and, and how Satan dupes people. Because one thing that you realize, that the Christian is going to be the best citizen there ever was. Who's going to be a better citizen than a Christian? And, and you know, Paul, Romans 13, <laughs> tells us how to be a better citizen. And yet people, it's like they don't understand that. Because like Paul was saying here in, in 2 Corinthians 4, their minds are blinded. They're, they're blinded to the truth. And until, until Christ comes, there is going to be a persecution of God's people. Whether it's persecution against the Jews and persecution against the Christians. Anybody that represents biblical truth is going to experience that and see that. They troubled the crowd. <clears throat> and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, and so when they had taken security of Jason, in other words, money to bail him out, and the rest, they let them go. You know, Paul would you know, later uh, reflect on what the Lord had done there for them. 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says this. He says, remembering without ceasing, he's thinking about the, the Thessalonians, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. In other words, in such a short time, God had done a work within these believers. That's why when you look at uh, second, or First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, even he's there for a very short time, preaching to them three weeks, that he's already laid down a foundation for eschatology, or in other words, end-time prophecy. And you see that in, in chapters 4 and chapter 5 and the second epistle as well. And he's saying here, your work of faith, remember it without ceasing. Your labor of love and patience of hope. And he says here, uh, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God taught them on election. Uh, for our gospel was not, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. So again, you know, God's truth, the gospel, coming in the power of the Holy Spirit and bringing that wonderful sense of assurance. I can remember, you know, I was told I was a Christian. I was told I went through all the rituals. And I was told this, you'll never know until you get there. And you know something? That's not biblical. You can know that you know that you can know. You can have an assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ is in your heart, in your life. And you can know your ticket has been punched. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. He goes on to say, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Lord in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all those in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. In other words, this church just became an example. And in verse 8, they're a mission church already. Do you remember when you first got saved? What did you want to do? Man, you just want to tell everybody. Man, may that come back into our lives. May that just that desire to see people, that, 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 and that's one thing that we do pray in our, our men's meeting for us as a church, that we would have just an evangelistic passion to communicate him to our world. Don't be put off when they reject her. The, the, the strange thing is, we don't realize it, that when we share with the truth of someone, that may just be a seed. And again, like we said, there's something wonderful and dynamic about the seed of God's truth when it gets into someone's soul. I believe when that happens, I believe they're going to get saved later. So be careful. Don't be put off. Don't be discouraged. It, it, it's risky. It's risky sharing your faith. But honor, God honors those kinds of risk when we, when we do that. Now back to our, you know, this guy Jason, we don't know who he is. He's sort of one of the, like, as Paul would speak about in another place, unknown uh, but well-known. And I think he represents those who are simply willing to put themselves out there and risk for Christ. It is. The, the Christian life is a risky thing. We have to understand that. 
Oh, God, help us from not getting too comfortable in our comfort zone. To be willing to risk, to be willing to share our faith. Because when you start sharing your faith, all of a sudden you find there's these other people that you start praying for. When we share our faith, it has a way of just sort of encouraging also our prayer life. Because I think many people when they come to prayer, it's like, oh, what do I pray about? <laughs> you know, rub-a-dub-dub, -dub, bless the grub. And I pray for, you know, my spouse or my kids, and that's, that's it. Yeah, I'll tell you what, there's a world out there of hurting people that need Jesus. And you know what? He's going to bump us into them. He is going to bump us into them. I'm amazed at how many times I bump into Christians that I've known that, that are not actively in church and the Lord has a way, a wonderful way of just sort of using that to encourage them. I, I did it this week. I did it this week. I bumped into somebody in the store. Hey, how you doing? And after our conversation, he says, I'm going to be in church Sunday. <laughs> I wasn't pressuring them to do that at all. We were just kind of talking and fellowshipping. But all of a sudden, you know, he was encouraging the things. I'll be in church Sunday, he says to me. Praise God. There's a story that comes to us when we talk about risking for Jesus. Uh, Torture for Christ was the first book by uh, Richard Warmbrand. And a lot of the stories were reprinted in a book called Jesus Freaks that just kind of came out, I think, probably about 10 maybe a dozen years ago. It was just incredible stories of the persecuted church and things that we, need to, that we need to understand and we need to read those kind of stories to appreciate what you and I have. And I think there's many Christians in America, we're not going to appreciate the freedom we have until it's totally gone. And I'll tell you what, folks, it's slipping away very, very quickly, our freedoms. And you know what? God's letting it happen. God's letting it happen. Because I tell you what, there's a patriotic thing in me that it angers me. But you know what? God's letting it happen. You know why? Because America did this to God. Yes, we have. Not us. Not the church, but the nation. Things are winding up, folks. What's going on today, the, the pressure and the fear that's going on today, I never thought I'd see that in my life. But now's the time for us to shine as lights. Anyway, Wormbrand shares this, <clears throat> one of his stories. He says, I don't have much to, time to tell you all the beauties of the underground church. I should perhaps tell you of just one episode uh, which I have lived. We were in a prison cell, some 30, 40 prisoners. The door was unlocked and the guards pushed in a new prisoner. He was dirty like we were. We had not washed ourselves in three years. He was so dirty, and we were dirty. He was shorn and had a striped uniform on of a prisoner. And in the half-darkness of the cell, 
we did not recognize him. But at a certain moment, one of us exclaimed, this is Captain Popescu. I recognize him. Captain Popescu had been one of the worst torturers of Christians. He had beaten and tortured even some of us uh, who were in the same cell with him. We wondered how he had become a prisoner of the communists and how he had been put in prison, this prison cell reserved for Christians. So we surrounded him and asked him his story. With tears in his eyes, he told us that as he sat in his office, a few months earlier, a soldier on, the, uh, on duty knocked on the door and said, outside is a boy of 12 or 13 who has a flower for your wife. The captain scratched his head. He did not remember that it was his wife's birthday, but in any case, he allowed the boy to enter. The boy entered with a flower in his hand, very shy, but very decided, and said, Comrade Captain, you are the one who has put my father and mother in prison, and this is my mother's birthday. I have the habit of every, every year on this day, out of my little pocket money, to buy a flower for her. Because of you, I have no mother to gladden today. But my mother is a Christian. She taught me since I was a little child to love my enemies and to reward evil with good. And I thought to give joy to my, to my mother, or to give joy to the mother of your children. Please take this flower to your wife and tell her about my love and about the love of Christ. <clears throat> it was too much even for a communist torturer. He was also a creature of God. He also has been enlightened with the light which enlightens every man that comes into the world. Well, he embraced this child. He could not beat anymore. He could not torture anymore. He was no longer useful as an officer of the communist secret police. And he came to suffer together with the children of God, and he was happy for his new state. Let us have before our eyes the love of Christ who saved us. Continue to simply believe in his love. Isn't that a great story? A powerful story about the love of Christ. That's what, that's what motivated Paul. That's what motivated that captain, that former torturer. And that's what needs to motivate us you know, and work within our lives. To not to see people in that kind of way. You know, so often I find myself seeing people just as my enemy. <laughs> the opposition. And resenting them. But to love people with the love of Christ. That's so otherworldly, isn't it? It is so different from the way so often that we handle these matters. Now in verse 10, God knows when to give his people a refresher and he takes them to Berea. And you know what? We're out of time. The Berean story is a great story, and we're just going to leave it till next week, okay? Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you came. You came to redeem us. You came to purchase us back to God. Lord, we will never face what Paul faced. And more than likely, we will not face what Richard, Richard Wormbrand faced. Yet we have our trials. 
we, we have our test. And how I pray, dear Lord, that we would rise up, realizing we have this incredible, this privilege, this call, Lord, to represent you, to communicate you to a darkened world. Lord, may the Holy Spirit fill our hearts, fill our lives with grace, with faith, Lord, not to be caught up, Lord, in the vice of fear. Lord, to be willing to sacrifice and risk our convenience, Lord, our comfort. For, Lord, you did that for us. You hung on a tree for us. You became a curse for us that we might be called the children of God. So, Lord, help us, we pray, to walk, to walk in this great privilege, this incredible honor, Lord, to represent you who died for us, who rose again from the grave for us, to reach out, Lord, and to touch those waitresses, those neighbors, those co-workers, those relatives, Lord, those family members, that, Lord, we may be the only gospel they will ever see. So help us, dear Lord, that we might glorify and honor you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Shall we rise?